Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 326 The Politics of Buddha Nature. We're joined again by political author and Buddhist practitioner Matt Bieber to explore what a politics, which takes Buddha nature as its starting point, might look like. This is part two of a two part series. Here's an interesting question. I'm wondering as you're saying that because I I, th- I find it very fascinating and and I, I seem to remember even you know my initial economics classes that I took in college. You know that that was the basic fundamental assumption behind both our economics and our political structure. Mm-hmm. It had the same kind of assumptions. And since then, I've thought, oh yeah, that is a it is a really limited view of what a human being is, and definitely out of sync with my experience. Um, that said, I mean, what are, are we trying to create a system or are we trying to create systems that are reflective of how human beings actually are? Or are we trying to create systems reflective of what human beings could become? And I think that's a kind of, just a question that comes up for me, because I think anytime we go into the latter, you know, there, there are challenges related to um, ignoring human nature you know, at least some parts of human nature that we are, you know, sometimes self-interested, greedy, you know, myopic beings. Um, mm-hmm. And then you get sort of an idealism, you know, that that becomes the basis for a system. And how well does that really work? You know, and then how do you find um, what the nature of a human being actually is? Because isn't that something that changes um, once once you start exploring it? Anyway, just just a few, you know, simple thoughts, just simple <laughs> questions for you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Give me 30 seconds. I'll have that all wrapped up. Um, <laughs> no, I, th- uh, yeah, absolutely. Those are great questions. And in a way, I think, um, let me step back a second. I, I really appreciate the distinction. I certainly don't want to stand on um, some vision of of, um, of what we are that, um, that I'm, uh, frankly, I'm, you know, I, I believe what I told you earlier, but I'm, you know, I'm not ready to really preach it as as the gospel from from the mountaintops. I mean, I I've seen it. I've got some confidence. I want to explore more. I've got some questions too. Um, but I certainly I, I, and I I want to pursue it in part because um, it feels like there's a germ of truth there, and it runs so counter to everything to nearly everything that our um, contemporary political discourse suggests. That I I think well, gosh, um, if there's salvific potential here, it's really it's doubly worth pursuing. Um, both for me personally, but perhaps also this discourse that may have gone awry. You know, in a way, I sort of think we don't need to answer the the question that you asked, um, if only because the vision of a human being that's um, that's offered to us, and and I don't mean from marginal sources, I don't mean from Fox News, I mean out of the mouths of even um, you know our president or our um, perhaps even some of the mainstream politicians about whom we might feel the best. We still have, I think, in the main. A pretty truncated version, uh, a vision of what a human being is—not just could be, but is—and in, in a way, I think the task is um, my t- the, the task that I feel called to um, perform is just trying to complicate that vision, just trying to offer up the missing pieces of the puzzle, or at least the ones that I'm you know, happen to have stumbled across or feel like I have to offer. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't think I have any monopoly on it either, but um, I, I guess. 
it feels like a very critical task. Um, and both, I mean that in both senses of the word, important, but also critical about criticism that um, the, the vision of humanity, of what we're capable of, of how we might be toward ourselves and others that we're offered um, by most of our mainstream culture is, um, is missing something. And, and I think, you know, one task that I would love to see uh, more folks that I went to school with, more folks in the Buddhist communities that, I'm, that I know, uh, more folks uh, of other stripes take up is, is that task of pushing back every single time we're asked to believe something about us that falls short or sells us short of what we are and could be. Okay. Okay, cool. So um, could you share some like specific thoughts of, of like how you might see the, the, the political space being different if it were infused with, with a, a bit more of this kind of a uh, recognition of basic goodness or, or compassion or Buddha nature? Yeah. So actually, I'm going to take a slight left turn here and, and talk about free will for just a second. Okay. Because um, I, I think it's related. And I'll, I'll swing right back to your question. Great. So at the beginning of his recent book, Sam Harris, uh, on free will, it's called free will. Sam Harris makes the point that um, Republicans tend to be a little bit more, in some cases, a lot more enamored of the notion of free will than Democrats are. For Republicans, there's this idea that, um, for many Republicans anyway, there's this idea that no matter your circumstances, no matter your economic misfortune, um, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can achieve the American dream and so on. Um, Democrats tend to be a little more, um, I, I guess I want to say aware of the power of circumstance to shape and limit the choices and capacities we have as individuals. Um, I think that's true. Um, and, uh, and I think free will would be another great uh, topic of conversation one day. Um, but I think the same, I think that split, that basic, uh, um, that basic distinction between the parties is also there when it, and in fact, it's, it's nearly the same distinction, is there when it comes to our understanding of what it is to be a human being. For the Republican Party, there's um, much of the party is still enamored of this image of, of Ronald Reagan and the rugged frontier individualist, this uh, self-made man. I mean, all of these hoary um, fairy tales, essentially. And unfortunately, the Democratic Party is pretty bound up in them, too, because to be at all successful in American politics today, you've got to nod in that direction. Thankfully, um, the Democratic Party tends to also nod a little bit more, um, and this president in particular tends to nod more in the direction of an awareness that um, whatever the ultimate metaphysical truth of the matter, um, as a practical matter, we are all deeply bound up in each other's lives. And uh, the president gave a speech uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and I remember being both excited and exasperated um, because he, he basically framed uh, the history of American political philosophy in terms of these two threads, the first being the rugged individualist and the second being this awareness of the power and necessity and integral uh, fabric of community in our lives. Um, and he unfortunately put them in that order. He said, there's also been this second tradition, you know, of, of the, of all the community interrelationality inter and all this other stuff. And I remember thinking, I get what you're doing rhetorically and I get why you did it. Um, but gosh, the second thing is actually much more true. And if, if I had my way, and I think if perhaps if um, Buddhist teachings, if not actual Buddhists themselves, had a bigger influence on politics, that strain and that understanding would have a much bigger role to play. Um, we would come to understand that the ways that our own individual lives are so fully formed by the influences on us, by our genetics, by our surroundings and our, our parenting, 
by our friends and the communities and the, the that we're a part of and the influences that work on us um, that we wouldn't we wouldn't be nearly so prey to these illusions about you know self-created people and up by the bootstraps and all the rest of it okay it's interesting yeah no I've, I've heard that distinction made as well um, um, by philosopher named Ken Wilbur and he talked about you know the distinction between those parties in terms of one focusing on the individual and the other focusing on on the collective or on the on the kind of um, you know the collection of individuals that makes up that collective hmm. and um, I found that a really helpful distinction and I I kind of have wondered sometimes though too if you know if sometimes we can go too far you know to, toward the end that one side of the collective you know and sort of mitigate the degree to which individuals can be very powerful agents of change in the right circumstances. Um, some of the people you mentioned earlier, you know, uh, Martin Luther or Gandhi, you know, there's certain certain individuals and for whatever reasons, maybe and maybe a lot of it is based on on timing and based on a lot of factors that had to come together for those individuals to be that. Um, and yet still, you know, they, they were clearly important figureheads or or important, you know, their actions actually did seem to have some sort of broader impact that impacted a lot of systems and a lot of people. So I, I wonder, you know, is it is it is it kind of an either or, or is there is there a spectrum there? Like, it's a great question, and I, it's one that I'm still wrestling with. In fact, um, <laughs> every time I lift up King and Gandhi as, as examples of what could be, mm -hmm. uh, I have a friend of mine who pushes back on my blog. And always insists uh, that I acknowledge the the thousands of unnamed people in each of those movements, without whom nothing would have ever happened. Um, right, right. You know, so it's it's a confusing thing to me. I mean, on one hand, I think these people were they were not. I don't think they were replaceable. Um, they were singularly talented, singularly charismatic, singularly influential. By the same token, the qualities that they expressed and represented the in King's case, perhaps particularly, the unbelievable love uh, that was in his heart uh, that, that, for example, enabled him to stand on the porch of his just bombed house and tell all the would-be vigilantes that came to you know, support him and take, take revenge that that's not what, what this movement was about, that they were, needed to be about something much bigger and, and more loving than that. I mean, that's, that's a kind of love that, that I would love to see cultivated in everybody, in every, in every school child not just as a sort of far away remote example that you celebrate every January 16th or whatever the holiday is, um, but it's something that um, we should all truly strive for. And I, I suspect that if we had a culture that valued, for example, King in a much deeper and more full-fledged way, one that actually saw his virtues as, as worth teaching and cultivating, then you know, while you certainly can never guarantee that somebody like him is gonna come around again, you'd have a whole lot more people running around and creating movements and working for change with great stores of that very love and compassion. And uh, maybe you wouldn't need somebody quite like him. I don't know. Yeah. It's such a, such an interesting question. I remember I was watching, uh, it was on Martin Luther King day, uh, this incredible documentary about, about his life. And there was one, I was sitting there with my dad watching this and there was one, there was one thing that, that he supposedly said that really struck me. And I was, I was shocked to hear it. And he said at one point that history has me. And I thought that was such an interesting point, you know, to, to kind of acknowledge the way that he was bound up in these historical forces. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that in a certain way, like in a certain sense, his life wasn't really his anymore. I mean, that statement seemed to imply that, you know, like a deep recognition of, of, of bigger causes and conditions. And yet, you know, who in those particular circumstances, you know, would really go with that and, and, and sacrifice so much in terms of personal happiness, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of pleasure or, you know, safety or, you know, some of the things we value a lot. Um, <laughs> And, 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 and I, I sometimes wonder, like, is it, is it those circumstances, you know, that, that lead to a person becoming such a, an amazing shining light of love or, or is it the other way around? It's the shining light of love that enables them to be in the circumstances, you know, or both. I don't know, but it is such a cool, it's such a good question. He's, he's such a, I think just a rich, a rich subject of exploration for precisely this reason, because there's a really uh, in his uh, in some of his writings, his early writings. There's a a scene in which he recounts, and this is an early part of the movement before uh, a lot of the, the, the violence and the threats of violence that came his way. He's sitting at his kitchen table and is you know asking in his case asking God for guidance because he's really confused, uncertain that he's up to the task. And I, I guess I want to my I guess my intuition is to say that you know the Martin Luther King of '55 probably wasn't you know wasn't ready to do the things that the martin luther king of 68 did but at some you know that life kept unfolding and you know kept manifesting greater and greater capacities of love and compassion as 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 you say as history took him i uh I, you know one of the things that's the things that's most interesting to me about him is how and this is deeply related to what we're talking about is you know obviously this is a, a christian preacher deeply steeped in the in the uh, heritage of the black church. And yet in some ways seem to embody the kind of pure love, the deep selflessness in many ways that, um, Buddhists often look to in, in some of their highest, uh, most revered teachers. So in a way, you know, when I get, uh, a little down in the dumps about, um, how marginal Buddhism often feels in America, I, I, I often look to him as a reminder that, what I'm not, what I'm hoping for is not that something called Buddhism attains prominence, right. but rather that the teachings, and particularly the teachings about how we might be capable of being better to ourselves and to others, those I think are, you know, more universal than any than any label, and they have a proud and and uh, towering exemplar in him, which which might well suggest that, um, you know, there's there's more receptivity to this stuff and and more hunger for this stuff out there even in the home of, uh, you know, rugged individualism than, than you might otherwise think. Cool. So um, maybe just to wrap up, I was wondering if you could share any, you know, of your favorite kind of uh, authors or people that are also exploring the space of Buddhism and, and politics, because um, I've had several people in the past ask me, you know, who would you suggest looking at here? And I don't know if it's just my own kind of uh, biases or, or if it's really just kind of hard to find some of these folks, but um, I haven't really ever had any good sources for people. So I was wondering if you could share some of your favorites that way if folks are more interested in kind of diving deep into this topic, they can. And I'd also mention before you do that, that theweetandchaff.com is also a really good place to to go and check that out. I've, I've seen a bunch of new people from just reading your blog that, um, that are kind of in line with this, but anyway. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, so, um... So the name that comes to mind is Peter Hershock, um, a, a scholar out in Hawaii who has a book called Buddhism in the Public Sphere that is, of, of what I've seen, which is certainly not exhaustive, 
is um, the most specifically engaged with the nuances of American politics and policymaking. So the way the book works is he's got a chapter on each of eight or nine policy areas, including um, anti-terror policy, the environment, et cetera. And, and he does what very few Buddhist authors do, which is um, not just talk in general about uh, how about or not just exhort the reader in general to apply Buddhist patience or Buddhist creativity or Buddhist compassion to a thorny policy problem, but actually gets into the weeds of the specific challenges that um, that the policy problem creates, and then also that are faced by um, that are faced by would-be change agents. I actually think that um, Chogyam Trungpa, who you know I'm partial to, has a lot of wise stuff to say. Not so much about the specific vicissitudes and exigencies of American politics per se, but much more about the what would we want to say, the temperaments, the traits of character that are required to engage effectively in politics. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I actually think that's, um, I think there's two sides of this uh, whole thing. There's the question of um, how to apply Buddhist teachings in a sophisticated way um, when we face the specific challenges we face. But then there's also, I, I don't think it's any less valuable, the more general reminders of the magnitudes of the challenges we're going to face when we go into worlds like the political sphere. And so for that, I don't necessarily think you need writers steeped in the details of policy or politics, but you just need some, some general exposure to wisdom. I mean, I go back to the same authors over and over just because mm. like a good meal or a good family or something, they provide a constant source of support. Great. Okay, cool. Sweet. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us and exploring, you know, the politics of Buddha nature. Um, I think we've absolutely been a treat. Territory. Yeah, it has. Maybe, uh, maybe, maybe we could take. If your voice holds, we could take one question from someone who's been tuning in live. Um, absolutely. Okay. Cool. So uh, this is a question from Susan Law, who's been joining us uh, throughout. She says, uh, "How how important do you think it is for Buddhists to simply embody their our principles as opposed to pursuing a particular agenda explicitly that sort of ties i guess into what you're just saying in a way that is that's the sing, the single most um confounding question to me because um you know as I've, I've been writing a lot about honesty and as you and susan know um the political sphere requires a great deal of dishonesty so i think a lot about vimala kirti uh, the ancient buddhist indian saint who had this capacity to, as you know, mythically speaking, had this capacity to sort of transform himself into um, uh, into any shape that was needed, into any situation, and to be effective in it. Um, I tend to think that um, we'll serve uh, we'll serve the world best by sticking as close to those principles as we can, mm. if only because they're they're so often so underrepresented. And to get a chance to grow, they need a chance to see the light and for others to see them. But um, politics is a complicated thing. And I, I certainly don't want to speak too sweepingly or um, too, too overconfidently either. Um, I think it's just a, a tricky set of spaces to operate in.
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.